Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast, a series of discussions with the most disruptive CEOs and leaders in digital health. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Breaking Health Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. And thank you, Steve Krupa of the Silas Group for joining us as well. Hi, Tom. How are things going on your end? Very good. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. So you had a, a sit down with Corey McCann, uh, yeah. CEO of Paratherapeutics. They've made some uh, some news recently, raising some some money uh, from uh, Five AM Ventures, Arboretum Ventures, Jazz Venture Partners. I'm sure these are people you're all familiar with, uh, and they've got an interesting uh, digital therapeutic approach. What are they up to? Yeah, th- it's interesting. I think this is, if I'm right, this is our third you know, foray, if you will, into the uh, behavioral health space, right? I think you're right. So we did Jan Bruce, which was uh, online uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, Carol Clayton talked about big data and using that to find uh, patients with behavioral disorders and linking that up with their care. And, and paratherapeutics is, is, is taking the approach that they can use patient engagement tools that are, uh, are enabled uh, through mobile devices. Uh, to create true digital therapeutics uh, for behavioral health. And that is to use um, monitoring, compliance, and some game theory uh, to get people to change their behavior. And their first product is in the SUD category, uh, which is substance use disorder, uh, generally around uh, drugs like uh, cocaine and marijuana, but also alcohol. Um, not in the opiates area because that, that probably requires additional treatment, but they have been able to demonstrate that their digital therapeutic improves uh, abstinence from those products in a significant, statistically significant way such that they're hoping to get an FDA label for it. Well, that's outstanding. I, I imagine the, the user would have to have severe buy-in to this idea. I mean, they've got to participate in this process. They've got to be part of it. Yeah, they absolutely do. They have to want to be cured of their addiction or their habit, as it might be probably better defined. And I think that uh, that's part of, you know, Corey will go into that in the interview, but part of the process is a reward system for good behavior, right? Uh, That is, uh, and he understands this much better than I, but that is tied into the inherent mindset of a habitual drug and alcohol user. Uh, so it sort of uses um, their their behavioral tendencies for their benefit to keep them from using uh, using substances, and it's kind of interesting. And the fact that he's actually able to to show statistical data that that this type of uh, of a program uh, improves uh, improves outcomes is very significant. I mean, he's literally going for the equivalent of like a, what would be a medical device or a drug label. That says this is the type of outcomes we think we can produce, and he'd be able to market his product based on that. Outstanding. Well, let's uh, let's take a listen. Cool. Welcome to the Breaking Health Podcast. I'm here with uh, Corey McMahon, the CEO of Pair Therapeutics. Welcome, Corey. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, very good. So we'll, we're going to dig into uh, you know, some issues around uh, the, the neuroscience area. But let's, go, let's start out talking about uh, your background, because you were once like me, venture capitalist. Maybe you still are. You're doing CEO NVC. And then before that, you were much different than me in that you, uh, you started out with a background in, in biology. And it sounds like a very deeply rooted scientific interest in, in neurosciences. Um, just give me a sense of how you ended up where you are today. What got you more on the business side of things? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, as you had mentioned, um, I have uh, originally a technical background, uh, so trained as an MD-PhD, physician neuroscientist, more specifically, Um, have always had a very, very specific interest in the brain, um, and spent a lot of time looking at the interaction between uh, cognitive experience and molecules in patterning the developing nervous system. Um, thereafter, uh, treated psychiatry, neurology, and pain patients in a clinical setting. Uh, and I always joke uh, that this is where my career sort of transitioned from the light to the dark to the progressively darker side. <laughs> 
Um, so um, started a couple of uh, digital health and medical device companies during grad school and uh, really sort of uh, got bitten by the biotech bug, uh, if you will, at that point. Right. Um, Post-grad uh, school, moved over to McKinsey uh, in the firm's New York office, uh, really did uh, all healthcare work there. Uh, and I guess of note for the story at Paratherapeutics, uh, ran McKinsey's CNS expertise group. Uh, we were probably about 15 consultants uh, who worked all across uh, biopharma, medical device, payers, providers, uh, doing uh, work that's very much like uh, the rest of McKinsey, but with a very specific focus on disorders of the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, Post-McKinsey, moved over to the venture buy side, uh, first with a firm by the name of Rivervest Venture Partners, uh, sort of doing your traditional you know, series A, B, C, two to 10-ish million dollar uh, equity financings. Uh, and then most recently with uh, MPM Capital here in Boston. Uh, as you probably know, MPM is one of the larger healthcare investors out there. Sure. I think the firm has invested something like $3 billion across 150 different healthcare tech companies. Um, and one of my big projects at MPM was to look at digital health. Okay. And uh, when I was out looking at uh, digital health. I, I was doing so with uh, the Kennedy family. So Stephen Kennedy Smith, who runs the Kennedy family office, and uh, Patrick Kennedy, who wrote the Mental Health Parity Act, mm-hmm. I guess maybe the second embodiment of the Mental Health Parity Act. And we were out looking at digital health or digital therapeutics specifically uh, with the eyes of a drug developer. And more specifically, what that meant for us is that we were looking for assets that had randomized clinical trial data, uh, assets that had a path to approvability, assets that had great IP, um, and also a path to reimbursability. And I guess if you roll that all up, uh, we were looking for assets or products as opposed to digital health services. And we were seeing anywhere between zero and one of those companies on the landscape, uh, depending on you know how you want to count. Right. Uh, and just saw this huge, huge opportunity, which later on turned into pair. Interesting. So did you imagine back then that you'd be the CEO of one of these companies, or were you, did you expect you'd stay as as more of a founder or an investor? Uh, when did you decide you didn't want to run things? Yeah, I mean, dispositionally, um, I like to build. That's what makes me happy, and that's what makes me excited to get out of bed to do this every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think being an investor is it is a really, really interesting thing to do. But when I look at the investors that I admire most, they're sort of half investor, half entrepreneurs. So right. they're the people who are out there raising LP capital, building new vehicles, and really sort of pushing a brand of some sort. Um, I, I think being an investor is really, really interesting in that context. Uh, but for me, a little bit less so if you're the guy that's going from 3,000 opportunities to 100 and then you know, doing a crazy amount of diligence on 95 of those to, you know, get your two deals done by the end of the year. Right, right, right. So digital therapeutics is, to be honest with you, it's a new word for, I'm sure, a lot of our listeners. Um, I've heard it used in a couple of contexts. Give me a sense for what you mean when you say digital therapeutics. And, and I acknowledge that it means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. Um, to us, very simply, it means software as a drug. Um, or I guess uh, taking it a step further from a regulatory perspective, software as a medical device. Okay. Um, cool. So the big bullet points there would be that these are um, software offerings. We're not talking about telemedicine. So this is not an interface between a patient and um, a physician. Uh, this is really a set of digital content that, that does the therapy, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the other important aspect for us um, is that uh, um, this is something which is intended to treat disease. So we don't sit in the health and wellness space. Um, we uh, aim to treat disease. And for us, um, the more severe disease, uh, the more interesting. Um, it's very much akin to sort of the orphan drug strategy right. um, of continuing to look at more and more severe, more and more targeted patient populations uh, to really get to the place where you can provide the most medical value, 
uh, to be able to speak to that medical value and to be able to really distribute these things via physician prescription. So it, 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 it sounds like it has at its core some sort of a way of changing behavior, maybe, or, or a medical condition. In other words, I've got to affect the outcome of a digital therapeutic myself. I have to behave in a certain way or I have to perform a certain therapy on myself by virtue of the software. Is, is, that, a way, is that a way to think about it? You know, I think that there are lots of different embodiments of what is the digital component. So yeah. it's everything from, um, you know, give for example, our um, addiction product. Uh, this is something which in a lot of ways resembles smartphone-based uh, online learning. Uh-huh. So it's a set of modules, a set of questions, and a set of rewards for the proper response. Um, bookend that with our post-traumatic stress product, uh, which is actually a virtual environment. Uh, which recapitulates traumatic events and helps the patient to unlearn um, post-traumatic stress that's associated with those traumatic events, uh, and then everything in between. But but those are just sort of two good examples of of what the digital component can look like. And I, you know, we had uh, we had uh, Sean Duffy from Amada Health on on the show, mm-hmm. and you know he call, he he definitely describes his product as a digital therapeutic, and and he lines it up with the idea that you know weight loss for diabetics is a a behavior modification, right? So in, in, in by changing one's behavior, you know, the outcome should be therapeutic. You should lose weight and therefore the, um, the symptoms and perhaps even the disease of diabetes will, will, will begin to alleviate. Is it safe to say that if you're thinking about a digital therapeutic, it's going to be, even if it's affecting diabetes in that example, it is going to have a cognitive or a, or a, or a psychiatric component to it in and of itself? Uh, even if it's treating something other than a uh, a neurological disease or a neurological effect, yeah, I think I think most digital therapies have uh, some form of uh, behavioral change component associated with them. Mm-hmm. Um, this isn't something that I've thought about extensively, but just off the top of my head, um, you know, there are some digital therapies for things like amblyopia mm-hmm. um, and and other visual conditions where the digital component directly is a therapy for vision. Okay. Um, and so there is no behavioral change component, if you will. Um, but most of these things have um, a behavioral change component. I think one of the things that's a little bit different about using a digital therapy for a psychiatric condition is that in many cases, the aggregate approvable endpoint um, is an assessment of behavior. Uh, so, for example, in major depressive disorder, uh, you have an assessment of behavior. Uh, in addiction, oftentimes you have either a patient-reported uh, consumption of a substance or you have a urine drug screen. Um, and so it's, it's not that we're trying to impact behavior as a means to something else. Uh, we're trying to impact behavior because that's actually the clinical condition. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Before we dig into the product, since I've got you uh, with your with an expertise on neurosciences, and I happen to have uh, a, a, a list of ideas and companies that are coming along the, the pipe for, for these interviews that are involved in psychiatry and neuroscience, let me just ask you one sort of general question, and then we'll we'll dig into paratherapeutic. Para, para sure. Where are we in terms of our knowledge of the brain and neuroscience? In terms of are we are we much further along than we were, say, five years ago? Are we at our most progressed point? Have, we, have, there, have there been major advances in our understanding of the brain that is, have taken place, say, in the next five, last five years? Um, it's a good question. I mean, I think if oncology is, a, I don't know, let's say a 7 out of 10 and infectious disease is somewhere like an 8 or a 9 out of 10, Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, CNS, if you will, is probably anywhere between a two and a five out of ten. Okay. And yeah. I, I think that's very different depending on the conditions that that you're looking at. So I, I think the places where we've made really really interesting progress um, would be places where there's some sort of a neurologic endpoint and usually some sort of uh, a very specific genetic abnormality. Um, so, you know, take MS. I think we've made pretty impressive strides in MS therapy. Uh, and when you start to look at some of these um, neurologic orphan patient populations, 
Um, I think there's a lot in the pipe. I think we know a lot about disease processes. I think we have a good sense for causation. Um, and, and so I think that's, that's going to be really one of the hot areas over the next, let's say, five to ten years uh, for new treatments and uh, new pharma launches. So, so maybe that's the five out of ten. Mm-hmm. Um, the two out of ten is certainly mental health. And, you know, when you think about things like uh, depression, anxiety, sleep, ADHD, addiction, uh, the pipe is, for the most part, uh, empty. Um, I think we don't have a good sense for mechanism, and I think we don't have a good sense for target. Right. Um, a lot of the work that we're doing is directed toward uh, identification of markers, um, but there's a lot of confusion in the community uh, in the fact that marker does not equal target. So, so I think we're looking at a lot of genes that are changed in the adult but that doesn't necessarily imply that they're druggable. Um, so so I, at, at the danger of falling off my soapbox, I think we've got a long way to go. And so the, the treatment of those disorders right now is reliant on traditional psychiatric therapy. Is that, is that is because, the, because you're, we haven't really pro- progressed from the, the drug therapy realm? Yeah. I mean, I think that is at its core, the play at pair, you know, mm-hmm. to say, um, there is a whole group of these uh, mental health conditions uh, where we know that multimodal therapy is standard of care uh, because, again, there are fundamentally two therapeutic levers in the brain. You know, one is curated cognitive experience. Uh, the other is neurochemistry. Um, I would posit that uh, the way in which we drug and cover the neurochemical element uh, is going to stay fairly similar for the next, let's say, 10 to 15 years. So, you know, I don't see groundbreaking new treatments for anxiety coming down the pipe. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Not much for addiction. Uh, you know, it depends on who you ask and uh, who they've invested in, but not much for um, schizophrenia and so on and so forth. We, we could tick down the list. Um, and, uh, and really, the thesis at pair is to be able to take some of these uh, digitized uh, therapy-based interventions mm-hmm. to couple them with medications in new ways and to basically uh, create combination products uh, where you have what, what we refer to as drug software synergy. So basically, the combination of the two is able to impact efficacy on an existing aggregate approvable endpoint. Uh, in a way that just the drug alone wouldn't be able to do. That's interesting because I, I know when I talk to some of my uh, my friends in psychiatry, they 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 sum it up for me. I think like this: the the drugs available on the market are there for to enable therapy, talk therapy or or psychotherapy, and to alleviate symptoms, not necessarily to cure the disorder. Um, in, in many instances anyway, certainly with anxiety, I think, and depression and so on and so forth. Um, so it sounds like you're, you're, you're taking some of the, the therapy side of it and you're creating a digital product around that. So let, let's, let's talk about your, uh, your, your key launches. I know one of sure. the product is, a, uh, is an addiction product. So how does that work? Sure, absolutely. So um, you know, we've got a pipeline that's full of digital therapies, really canvassing. Uh, the mental health space first. Um, it's about 10 products to date. Uh, the lead product is our product called Reset, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Reset targets uh, substance use disorder, which is the aggregate clinical condition that covers um, a number of different addiction subtypes. Um, this product is a smartphone-based intervention, uh, so basically there are three big components. Uh, One is a set of modules, uh, so it's about 60 proprietary modules uh, that meter out many of the core concepts of what's called CRA, or the Community Reinforcement Approach. Uh, CRA is a very difficult to administer, but incredibly efficacious form of talk therapy. Uh, So basically, the patient... Alcoholics Anonymous, is that that what we think of um, CRA? uh, Actually, very different. So uh, CRA is... Uh, a modification of cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, and it's directed toward helping the patient uh, change their behavior patterns in the real world. 
such that they're able to foster abstinence. Uh, so, so very, very different from Alcoholics Anonymous, but, but very much more like CBT. Okay. Um, so the patient essentially completes those modules. Uh, on the back of those modules, you have a proprietary set of question and answer um, uh, assessments. Uh, that's what's called fluency training, and it's a question logic where the patient continues to answer questions until they get the questions correct. So, um, you know, assume that there are about eight to 10 questions that test some of the core uh, areas of proficiency for any given 10-minute module. Um, one could either spend 60 minutes answering those questions, assuming that I continue to answer them wrong, um, or one could answer those questions in, let's say, a minute to two minutes, assuming that I have a strong grasp of the therapeutic content and whiz right through the questions. Um, on the back of uh, the fluency training uh, is a thing that, that's called contingency management. So basically imagine a Farmville-style prize wheel uh, where uh, one can win anything from virtual goods uh, to uh, financial rewards or digital financial rewards. Um, and, and really all three of those elements work together uh, as the patient logs uh, things like cravings and triggers. Uh, all of those elements then roll up to a clinician dashboard uh, where the clinician during their face-to-face -face therapy session uh, is able to see areas of high and low proficiency, uh, see time and amount of use, uh, and really a number of other aspects of uh, patient performance so that they're able to focus on the areas of highest need during the face-to-face um, the, the -face clinical time. Hi, everyone. Tom here taking just a quick break from this conversation to remind you to go to healthegy.com. It's the word health, followed by the letters egy.com to sign up for our breaking health newsletter. You will get every week in your inbox this podcast, our original reporting on the healthcare industry, as well as video reports from our conferences. So go to healthegy.com and sign up for the breaking health newsletter. Now back to this conversation. Interesting. So. This this product you are combining it together with psychotherapy, or 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 that's a fair use of the term for uh, clinical therapy uh, for for patients with substance uh, abuse. Is that right? So it's it's correct with a subtle nuance. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are a number of different use cases here. Um, one is as complete replacement. And so um, we do have some experimental data for complete replacement. So essentially using the digital therapy in lieu of face-to-face -face therapy. Okay. Um, the, I would say the most favorable use case and the use case for which we are seeking regulatory approval is as partial replacement. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. essentially if a patient in uh, intensive outpatient therapy or IOT would normally be getting somewhere between two and four hours of face-to-face -face therapy per week, uh, here, 50% uh, of that would be administered by the digital component. So uh, the patient would be seeing their therapist for, you know, let's say an hour per week, uh, and the other three would be covered by the digital component. Okay. So the there's a lot of questions that come from this. Sure. I, I think I want to go back to just a simple understanding. This is this is more for me. Um, so I understand cognitive behavioral therapy uh, uh, pretty well. What what is the method of of uh, compliance that, say, an Alcoholics Anonymous and other sort of group therapy organizations deploy in compared to CBT? Um, it's a good question, and I'm frankly not um, an expert to, to speak to the salient differences between the two. Mm -hmm. um, generally speaking, um, programs like Alcoholics Anonymous tends to be more focused on spirituality and community, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whereas CBT tends to be more focused on eliciting behavioral change and understanding uh, motives. Um, that said, I probably wouldn't comment in a more granular way. Okay. All right. Fair enough. And, and then I noticed there, so it is an, an educational product, right? It sounds like you're going through modules to to teach the concepts of CBT and teach how those concepts apply uh, to a, to an individual's specific case, is there is there a customization that goes on in that education that the therapist deploys or that you deploy, or does the 
does the software sort of infer where to go next as the as the uh, as the patient works their way through the product? Sure. So, so the way that things are set up is that there are basically thirty core modules and thirty non-core modules. Mm-hmm. Um, all of our clinical efficacy data is uh, based on the dosing of the 30 core modules. Um, and so the clinician can then put into the queue the non-core modules or a repeat of some of the core modules. Um, and that's really the extent of the sophistication for today. Um, it's not because we don't find something more customized to be interesting. Uh, it's just that, you know, in all times and in all places, we follow the data. And the data supports the completion of the 30 core modules. It doesn't support customization today. Okay. Um, where we're headed, um, and this is you know sort of V2, V3, and beyond, um, is to be able to pull uh, real-world data like geolocation, uh, like uh, voice analytics, and to be able to predict cravings uh, and push the right module at the right time to the right patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, that's more of a research project for us, and we don't have the clinical data to support efficacy of that algorithm. Um, it is much more conceptually interesting, and, and, and that's where we're headed. So once you get enough people using this, right, you'll be able to see where they go in, in terms of the modules and where they're getting their their most benefit from, I would imagine, and then correlate that across you know, a population using, uh, you know, data correlation and so forth. Is that, is that part of the process? It, it, absolutely. And, and I think what, what maybe makes us a little bit different from most of the other uh, digital health companies out there. Um, so, you know, we will certainly um, do exactly what you just mentioned, which is uh, to correlate the data. Um, I don't know that we would push a new treatment paradigm or a new therapeutic based on correlation. Mm-hmm. Um, this would be more hypothesis generation for us to then take that new treatment logic into a clinical study and look head-to-head at an approvable endpoint to really go after new claims uh, associated with the new algorithm. Okay. And, th- and then the last piece of it is it sounded like there was a, a game, for lack of a better word, that 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 the, the patient will participate in as a way to sort of reinforce the concepts. Can you, can you explain that in a little more detail? Sure, ab- absolutely. And, you know, there's a whole literature on what's called contingency management. Right. And uh, the, the backstory here is that addicted patients um, are wired uh, so as to really enjoy a variable reward schedule. Um, you know, it's not terribly surprising that gambling addiction... You've got to explain that a little bit for me. So if I'm not, if I'm not addicted, I'm not, I, I like a consistent reward schedule that, that doesn't surprise me. That I'm just very curious about that point. So. Sure. So, so I, think, I, I think the real world example is to say that if I have an alcohol or drug addiction, I'm more likely to also have a gambling addiction okay. and vice versa. So, um, you know, all of these dopamine pathways govern addictive behavior and they get ramped up across uh, multiple uh, addicted conditions. And so what contingency management does is it basically provides a variable reward schedule that's associated with um, things which are desirable to enhance a patient's health. Um, and, And so specifically in RESET, uh, we are incenting for two different behaviors. Uh, one is for module completion and demonstration of proficiency across our uh, fluency training questions. Uh, and then the second is providing a clean urine drug screen. Um, just to give you a sense for the virtuous cycle that, that we try to incent and, and, and really the way that we think about this, um, that second reward is, is the more important reward. Um, you know, there's a higher probability of the prize wheel, uh, quote unquote, paying out for mm-hmm. the clean urine drug screen reward. Um, and the beauty of the clean UDS reward is that really the only way to have that input into the system is for the clinician to go into the clinician dashboard and input a clean UDS result. So it, it sets up this virtuous cycle mm-hmm. where the patient uh, has not taken drugs. Uh, the patient would like a spin of the wheel, and so they're asking their clinician to input their clean urine drug screen. Uh, the clinician is then interacting with the dashboard, and, and uh, that's also bringing the patient back to the client side or mobile offering. 
So, so that's that's really the type of thing that we like to uh, to, to build into our offerings. So I'm going to relate this back to my knowledge, which is very limited on the subject matter. But I I know there's the statement that that says you know the alcoholic is always chasing their first drink. Have you heard that that mm. that statement? Heard it, sure. And and it sounds to me like this is a little bit like that, <laughs> where <laughs> where basically you're setting them up to to perform to to participate in similar behavior cycle with the hopes of getting a big payout you know if that first drink is always the big payout right mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. in the end and what what happens when they don't you've obviously got to give them the payout once in a while otherwise they don't come back for more is that is that a good way to think about it I, i'm this is yeah, very interesting to I, me actually i i think that's um i think that's a good way to think about it and again it's it's the variable reward schedule so you know if you give them the payout every time um there will be less compliance um with the activity um, on the other hand, if you give them the payout, never, uh, there will be even less compliance with the activity. Mm-hmm. And, and so really the magic is um, in uh, creating a random reward schedule, which is uh, sufficiently engaging so that uh, the user, in this case, the patient continues to come back and participate in the exercise. Is it a little bit like getting them addicted to something healthy as opposed to something unhealthy here, but the addictive behavior stays in place? Or am I misunderstanding? No, I, I don't think you're misunderstanding. <laughs> Certainly, you know, we wouldn't put that on our website. No, 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 um, don't. But, but, but um, you know, I, I think it is fair to say that, um, and, and let, me, let me repackage what you just said. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that one can work with uh, some of the addictive circuitry in order to elicit uh, healthier choices and recovery from uh, substance use. Interesting. I, I, I know there's there's really a whole uh, sort of school of, of neuroscience around using using games and, and game processes uh, to to uh, for performance enhancement, for example, and, and things mm-hmm. of that nature. Is this coming out of that school of thought? Is that coming from that sort of literature or or work that's been done? Um, you know, I, I don't think it's coming out of that school of thought. Um, work on contingency management has been ongoing, um, you know, for the better part of 50 or 60 years. Mm-hmm. So I, I think uh, contingency management was actually a precursor of gamification. Um, but that said, I, I think maybe nowadays it's a flavor of gamification. Right. And, um, you know, I, I guess... From our perspective, um, the right answer isn't always a game, but games do seem to be helpful. Um, and, and again, I mentioned um, at the beginning of our conversation, we're pretty simple thinkers here. You know, we think about these things um, like drugs or like medical devices. And in that context, um, you know, there's a dose-response curve. So mm-hmm. the more the people engage, uh, the more you see the target benefit. And gamification, generally speaking, doesn't fundamentally change the therapy, but it does enhance engagement so that you get out to the right-hand side of that dose response curve and wind up with better outcomes. Very cool. Very cool. Do you, do you want before we before we move further on? You want to discuss some of, just maybe one or two of the other products? Is this this product is out now? The SUD product. Uh, so uh, this product is. Um, in the process of uh, FDA review, um, we are on track, and I'm knocking on wood that uh, you can't see here. Uh, you know, we acknowledge the ambiguities of a regulatory submission, uh, but I think in a world where things go our way, uh, to have this product FDA approved in uh, 2016, um, this would be a real watershed moment uh, for us and, and for this patient population. Uh, because this would really be the uh, first patient-facing digital therapy uh, that's out there to treat disease. So it's something that's really, really exciting for us. Um, and I think I've done it a bit of a disservice in that um, haven't spoken to the data. Um, you know, the devil's in the data. Yeah, let's and that's hear about really data. Why, yeah, that's, that's why I, as a clinician, just get really excited here. Um, so the data set that, that we submitted um, is a 507-patient, 10-center randomized clinical study. Uh, patients were randomized to either receive uh, face-to-face therapy uh, or the digital therapy. Um, and, uh, you know, the study was run uh, much like um, a study for a drug to treat substance use disorder. 
So everything was run by a CRO, adverse events were collected, um, and the primary endpoint was abstinence as assessed by twice weekly urine drug screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, skip to the punchline, uh, what we saw is basically a doubling of rates of abstinence for the digital therapy versus face-to-face. Um, we saw enhanced program retention, uh, and all of that rolls up to uh, a set of very ambitious um, uh, target indications, uh, which would be to enhance abstinence, uh, to improve program retention, uh, and as a partial substitution for clinician time. Wow. So, um, you know, I can almost guarantee you that we won't get everything that we ask for. That's not the way that this ever works. Um, but the data is really, really spotless. Um, you know, just by way of comparison, and this was my former life, was doing diligence on new drug assets for CNS conditions. Mm-hmm. If I ever saw a new drug that had a 50% abstinence bump, um, you know, that's that's like a 4 or $5 billion product. Um, and, you know, when you start to dig in on some of the clinical subpopulations, uh, we have this um, sort of troublesome and or refractory clinical subpopulation. Um, and in that particular clinical subpopulation, we were tenfold more efficacious than face-to-face therapy. Okay. Um, so these are things where, you know, you can play the p-value out, you can play the odds ratio out, but most importantly, these are highly clinically significant outcomes. That's great. That's great. Congratulations. Um, we'll, we'll report back when you get the, uh, when you get the approval. Can, can you go into the business model? Because obviously healthcare has got weird business models, right? <laughs> Lots of them. <laughs> Lots of them. So, you, you know, if this was just a normal fee-for-service world, I, patient, would say, oh, I can take a digital therapy and not pay for additional hours with, with a, in, in therapy, right? So the software should be cheaper than the in-person therapy event, I would think. But who, who pays for this and who's, who uh, helps you distribute the product at the end of the yeah, day? Yeah, so, so these are prescription products. Um, so these are not available without a physician's prescription. Um, and by virtue of going for FDA approval, um, we are turning these things into products as opposed to services. Mm -hmm. And so just like any other medical device, um, we are working to come out the back end with things like a CMS waiver, uh, things like unique reimbursement codes. Um, and you know, we know that this doesn't come the day after FDA approval, um, but, um, you know, it's, it's probably uh, multiple months or, uh, you know, 18 to 24 months after FDA approval, um, you know, we're working to get unique reimbursement codes so that uh, one can uh, be reimbursed for this by payers uh, in the same way that they would any other medical device. Okay. And it, would the idea be that if I was seeing a psychiatrist for drug addiction, that that psychiatrist could prescribe this product to me and that in, 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 in prescribing it the way they would prescribe, say, Xanax or something like that, well, they wouldn't do it for, for, for uh, substitutes, but, but, but whatever they would prescribe for me as a drug and you would be reimbursed by my health plan or by me directly, depending on how all that stuff works. Is that, is that the way you're thinking it's going to work? Yep, that's that's exactly um, the mechanism here, with the caveat that you know when we look at substance use disorder in particular, um, there is just such a dearth of uh, qualified providers and such a wealth of patients. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know we're looking at 30-ish million uh, Americans with substance use disorder. Um, you know certainly there's a use case. Uh, where this is in the hands of addiction specialists and psychiatrists. Um, Arguably, this gets even more interesting when you're able to put this in the hands of primary care physicians and ED physicians uh, who are dealing with relapse, who are dealing with overdose, um, and and who are really just looking for any sort of therapeutic tool to be able to help them treat patients in mass. And it's distributed mostly on phones, right? So I I can do this, I'm assuming, on my computer or on my phone? Uh, yeah, so it, it's primarily um, mobile. Um, you know, uh, we, we don't have a browser-based version today, uh, and that's not part of the initial submission, but uh, certainly I think that's something that will come online um, at some point. You know, just from a, a use perspective, we can cover most of the market with a mobile-only offering. 
Um, and the very simple mechanic is that, you know, this is available on the iTunes store. Uh, it's available on uh, Google Play, um, but it's available in a non-functional version. So essentially, you can download it, but it doesn't do too much for you. Mm -hmm. uh, and then with the prescription code that comes from your clinician, uh, that unlocks the functionalities, um, unlocks your user account, and gets you through to all of the therapeutic content. Very cool. Very cool. So tell us about what else is in your pipeline. Can you talk about some of the stuff you're, some of the other stuff you're doing? Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Um, so the, uh, product, which is, I would say the next furthest along, uh, in the pipeline is our product called thrive, which is our digital therapy for, um, SMI and SMI stands for serious mental illness. Um, and that includes uh, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, and bipolar disorder. Okay. Um, and uh, this is really sort of a, a fairly simple um, therapeutic paradigm uh, where the uh, digital therapy helps to work with the schizophrenic patient to help them to, A, understand uh, any sort of hallucinations and delusions, so it's really to identify them. Uh, to understand and to identify that they might not be experiencing reality, and then to give them a set of coping tools uh, to be able to work through things like hallucinations and delusions uh, in order to um, you know, be able to reduce them. Mm -hmm. And again, the devil's in the data for us. Um, so um, you know, we've got about a 33 patients uh, pilot and usability study where we were able to uh, show a significant enhancement of what's called PANS. Uh, PANS is uh, the aggregate approvable endpoint for any schizophrenia drug. Um, and here, the combination of drug therapy plus the digital um, was uh, showed a significant enhancement of PAN scores. Uh, so there, we've got three more studies and about 500 patients total um, that are currently ongoing. Uh, and also uh, a number of um, uh, pharma conversations uh, for a drug software combination that involves Thrive. Um, and, you know, again, whereas uh, Reset, the addiction product, has 1,500 patients across six RCTs, uh, we are very, very much upstream with Thrive, but the preliminary data is really, really interesting. Very cool. What, what does PANS stand for, by the way? Uh, positive and negative uh, symptoms in schizophrenia. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, schizophrenics, I, I would imagine, have to be medicated at some level at all times, right? And and one of the issues is probably when they don't take their medication, things can go wrong. I, I'm, I'm supposing that. that but... that, that's right. And actually, let, let me restate. It's positive and negative syndrome scale. Okay. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, so I, I, you're, you're absolutely right. So... Um, I think this really nicely speaks to this idea of multimodal therapy. Mm -hmm. So in schizophrenia, there's really not much of a market for monotherapy. So uh, taking the app without, um, for example, an atypical antipsychotic more than likely does not represent standard of care. Right. Uh, and so the intended use case would be Thrive plus um, an atypical antipsychotic. You know, we see the same thing in uh, the addiction product. Uh, so, you know, we've got great, great, great efficacy data for addiction to uh, alcohol, stimulants, cannabis, and cocaine. Uh, but when one starts to look in the opiate-dependent population, uh, their pharmacotherapy is absolute standard of care. So you need to have something on board in order to be able to curb cravings. Um, and so um, there we've got pretty remarkable combination data uh, with either uh, buprenorphine or methadone, uh, showing, again, roughly a doubling uh, of abstinence uh, versus drug plus face-to-face -face therapy. So, so it's interesting. A lot of these, these conversations come down to also there's a socioeconomic issue. Schizophrenics tend to have difficulty holding jobs and so forth, so we see probably a, an inordinate amount of them in Medicaid populations. Mm -hmm. My guess is addiction is similar, although probably not as, not as skewed. Um, so there's, there's gotta be a way to get them the phone, right. And, and get them online. Is, is that, 
is that something you think about as you start to think about how to distribute these products more broadly? Yeah, for sure. And, and maybe I would say a couple of things in response. Number one, um, Medicaid is absolutely the big market here. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we think a lot about um, accessing the Medicaid population and being able to get re- uh, reimbursement in that patient population. Um, thereafter, you know, everything that we do is designed so that um, the user can wind up um, using the digital therapy um, on their own phone. Um, you know, I know that a lot of this this work and a lot of these studies have been done in the context of handing out locked phones. Right. Um, I, I, I think that takes all of the interesting and scalable aspects of a digital therapy and flushes them. Um, and so, you know, what, what we're really trying to do is to set this up um, so that a user can access the mobile therapy on their own phone. Um, you know, we also design all of these things so that one does not necessarily need a data plan. Uh, so, you know, if one was to go to Starbucks and hop on the Wi-Fi, uh, you'd be able to download content and um, upload all of your user data. Um, and, and so you don't need to be continuously uh, connected to the web. Um, and, and so it's a little bit of a happy medium. Interesting. Very cool. I, I, very, very fascinating. I'm looking forward to seeing the products and, and so forth come out. We're, we're getting down to the end of our time. Um, but I gotta, I got, since, since you were spanning, you know, CEO and venture capital, right. I've got to, got to ask you sort of my favorite last question. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. And by the way, uh, this is Corey McMahon, the CEO of pair therapeutics. Um, and by the way, a lot of interesting information on your website and so forth. I, I point listeners there. They want to dig in a little deeper. Um, so I know you just raised, this was a series A or series B. Uh, series A. Series A. So congratulations. I know how easy it is, as you know, to raise. <laughs> it's almost like a trip to hell for you, right? Because it was sort of like all of the stuff that you put other entrepreneurs through, you know how to you had to go through, right? <laughs> so um, here's my two-part question. I'll, I'll start with part one. Uh, you know, tell me about your fundraise and tell me how it felt to be on sort of the other side of the table. And then um, the second part is, uh, tell me about the culture that you're building at your company. Yeah. Sure. So, you know, happy to, uh, to address both of those things. I think, you know, the first thing that I would say about the fundraise um, is that, um, you know, we went out and um, had really the privilege of um, working with the investors uh, that we know, that we like, and that add the most value. Um, I know that that's a term that's bandied about a, a great deal in the venture world. Um, but as it turns out, not all investors add value at all times. Um, we've, uh, we've really got a great privilege um, of having a very diverse set of investors, um, and they're purposefully diverse uh, based on the diversity of our mission. Um, so uh, 5AM Ventures, uh, really sort of represents uh, best of the best in biotech. Right. And they also do a good deal of repurposing and specialty pharma. Um, so uh, they've been incredibly, incredibly helpful from that aspect. Uh, Arboretum Ventures is another member of the syndicate. And you know, I think about them as being best of the best uh, in the med tech space. Mm-hmm. And so they're really great at helping us to think about, you know, what is this as a device only? Um, and then Jazz Ventures brings the consumer tech perspective and really helps us to think about uh, our tech stack and user engagement. Um, and, and I think everyone in all board meetings and all of our communications uh, really brings together a very, very diverse set of views, um, which has helped us to co- uh, create a lot of value uh, really quickly. And I, I guess to deal with the second part of your question, yeah. Um, you know, I feel very strongly like I've got three jobs, um, raise the money, set the culture and steer the strategy. Right. And anytime I'm not doing one of those three things, I'm probably doing myself and the company a disservice. Um, you know, from a sure. culture perspective, I, I am, I'm absolutely humbled, uh, by this company. And one of the things that's most rewarding is to see people from very different disciplines, uh, speaking with one another and really trying to get to the bottom of what are really, really difficult questions. 
so roughly the way that we're structured is that we have all of the boring clinical and regulatory people like me in our Boston office. Mm-hmm. And then we've got all of the cool, sexy engineering and product people <laughs> out in the San Francisco office. And those two teams are interacting with one another on a daily, if not hourly basis. Um, and, and rather than, you know, say too much about this, I think the example that I always like to give as to why this is hard um, is, is around acronyms. And so uh, the, the one that uh, I, I continue to get enjoyment out of is, is the API. Mm-hmm. Um, and for our Boston team, API is obviously uh, active pharmaceutical ingredient. Uh, for our San Francisco team, API is a very different thing, which is yeah. application program interface. And it took us probably a month to figure out that we were talking about different things. Um, And and that was in the beginning of the company when it was much, much more difficult to get these groups of people together. Um, But now, you know, we're we're firing on all cylinders and we get clinical, commercial, regulatory, engineering and product input on all of the things that we do. And those are fantastic conversations. Interesting. You're combining science and computer science and, and, and biological science. And trying to get in a heavily, heavily regulated way. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Hey, I have to say, um, I knew I knew this was going to be a very interesting discussion as I started to get to learn about your company, but I really got a lot out of it. It's very, very interesting. I, I wish you the best of luck. Congratulations on your Series A in particular. That's the toughest round to raise. Um, and you do have a very cool group of investors, nice spanning uh some some different capabilities there so again thank you for joining me i really enjoyed talking to you wonderful i enjoyed it as well thank you for taking the time thanks Corey mccann for joining us on the breaking health podcast so happy to hear Paris story thanks again to steve krupa our host uh, ceo of the silos group for again leading a great interview uh, about breaking the healthcare system remember next week We'll have another tale of innovation on the Breaking Health Podcast.